everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Yang Shi Chu, the author of The Ghost Bride. Her novel is set in 1893 among a group of Chinese merchant families who have settled in Malaya, now called Malaysia. This debut novel came out in August and is already having major and well-deserved success. Oprah has picked it for her famous reading list. It's currently a Goodreads group read, and the author is one of four guest writers featured in an upcoming Coursera class on historical fiction. From the opening words, it's easy to see why. Chapter 1 One evening, my father asked me whether I would like to become a ghost bride. Asked is perhaps not the right word. We were in his study. I was leaving through a newspaper, my father lying on his rattan day bed. It was very hot and still. The oil lamp was lit, and moths fluttered through the humid air in lazy swirls. What did you say? My father was smoking opium. It was his first pipe of the evening, so I presumed he was relatively lucid. My father, with his sad eyes and skin pitted like an apricot kernel, was a scholar of sorts. Our family used to be quite well off, but in recent years we had slipped until we were just hanging on to middle-class respectability. A ghost bride, Lilan. I held my breath as I turned a page. It was hard to tell when my father was joking. Sometimes I wasn't sure even he was entirely certain. He made light of serious matters such as our dwindling income, claiming that he didn't mind wearing a threadbare shirt in the seat. But at other times, when the opium enveloped him in its hazy embrace, he was silent and distracted. It was put to me today, he said quickly. I thought you might like to know. Who asked? The Lim family. The Lim family was among the wealthiest households in our town of Malacca. Malacca was a port, one of the oldest trading settlements in the east. In the past few hundred years, it had passed through Portuguese, Dutch, and finally British rule. A long, low cluster of red-tiled houses is straggled along the bay, flanked by groves of coconut trees, and backed inland by the dense jungle that covered Malaya like a rolling green ocean. The town of Malacca was very still, dreaming under the tropical sun of its past glories, when it was the pearl of port cities along the straits. With the advent of steamships, however, it had fallen into graceful decline. And now, please join me in welcoming Yangshi Chu. Hello, Yangshi. Hello. So nice of you to agree to talk to us today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It's really an honor and a pleasure. So I'd like to start, as I always do, by asking you to tell us about yourself. Um, you are like your heroine, Lilan. Uh, your family were at one time Chinese living in what is now Malaysia. Is that correct? Yes. Well, actually, my family still lives in Malaysia. And... Uh, I spent part of my childhood there as well. My parents are still there. Um, but then you grew up in various places. Um, yes, it was an interesting childhood. So due to my father's job, um, we spent some time abroad in a number of different countries. So, we was, so it was always an outposting and then back to Malaysia and then somewhere else and back to Malaysia. And I think it was actually a very interesting childhood. And one that I am, in retrospect, um, quite grateful for because it was a lot of new experiences. So some of the countries that, um, that I lived in as a child include uh, Germany and Japan. And then later on, my dad went to lots of other places like Africa and Sweden and India. And how did you come to the United States? You're now living in the Western United States, as I understand. Yes. Um, well, I actually came for university. And um, the funny thing was that before I'd arrived for university, I really didn't know anything about America at all. Um, so I came as an international student to do my undergraduate degree, and I showed up with two suitcases. Um, and I remember thinking, wow, I'm actually in America, and America looks like the movies. <laughs> Which is really you know, there's so many iconic images that are really American, like um, yellow taxis. Uh, diners and things like that. And I remember there was this diner in Harvard Square, which, and, you know, it looked like a greasy spoon, and I was just so fascinated. It was called The Tasty as well, which is something I've never heard of. And I told my roommates, I really want to go to this place, The Tasty. And they looked at me, and they said, why? <laughs> that was really divey. But it, it reminded me of, you know, those, of Edward Hopper. And like I said, it, it seemed very iconic. And the number of consumer products in America was just mind-boggling. So it was very exciting. 
Yeah, I remember that, actually. I, I remember coming back from the Soviet Union and uh, walking. In, I mean, first of all, my husband came back and walking into Harvard Square and automatic tellers were just coming into um, use here. And so he went into the bank. He'd come from a country where they didn't even have checking accounts. You know, you went to a savings <laughs> bank and they handed you a pile of cash. Uh-huh. And he walked in and here are these banks of ATMs with people just putting in cards and getting out money. And and then he went to a grocery store and, you know, you walk into an American grocery store and, and there's 16 different kinds of peaches. And we haven't seen peaches in a year and a half. You know? so, <laughs> it's like, why do you need 16 kinds? <laughs> yeah, also the toothpaste, you know, I really was astonished by the toothpaste. And I actually remember going to CVS and just thinking, like, how do I make up my mind? Oh, my goodness. There is a really interesting book called The Paradox of Choice. I don't know whether you've... Oh, yes, right. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how, you know, so much choice is actually paralyzing sometimes. Um, and so that was really interesting. And the other funny thing about Harvard Square is that, you know, the car talk guys had an office there. I don't know what they still do. But they had this big signboard which said, Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. <laughs> you know, you know, it's, 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 an, it's an office video window in Harvard Square, and I remember looking at it and thinking, is this real? Or is it really, it's like a movie. <laughs> I didn't realize until later it was, you know, the car talk guy. So. Yeah, no, in fact, uh, my son went to Harvard, and I remember, you know, when you're a freshman, you actually can park your car in Harvard Yard. <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can. <laughs> for one day <laughs> when you drop your kid off or when you pick him up and it was and all I could think of was the car talk guys <laughs> um, so did you always did you practice writing when you were at Harvard I mean how did you get from there to becoming a novelist um, well I actually I think many people who like to write um, have been writing for a long time or their whole lives and since I was a child I enjoyed I've always enjoyed writing and when I was little, I actually wanted to be a cartoonist. So I wrote all these absolutely terrible stories, mostly by animals, and illustrated by me um, very badly. And I've been doing that since I was a kid, you know, writing little cartoons. There's a Malaysian cartoonist I really like called Lat, and he writes um, a lot of books about Malaysia. They're, they're very humorous and very gentle. And we had these books when I was growing up, you know, when we were moving from country to one country to another, and I used to copy his drawings and try to write my own stories. And then later on, I realized that, you know, I am a terrible cartoonist. All my dogs look like rats. So <laughs> I thought it give this up, but I was always writing short stories, you know, and many of them, as I said, were not very good short stories. Um, I did not do creative writing in university. Um, it was drummed into me as a good Chinese child that I ought to be doing something that would... Um, uh, you know, earn me a living at some responsible job. So I did not do creative writing, but I just wrote on the side. And after graduating, when I was working at a corporate job, um, I kept on writing in my spare time, but mostly for family and friends, so short stories for a long time. I never did think, I never thought I would get published, though. That was a big surprise to me. <laughs> well, you've written this wonderful novel. How did uh, The Ghost Bride come about? Um... You know, there are several seeds for this book, I think. Um, I think the most obvious starting point was I was actually writing another novel. I had and a disastrous one about a, a detective who was an elephant. Um, it gave me a lot of problems. But I was writing this book and um, researching it in my spare time. And I had actually gone to the National Archives to... And in those days, I think there were a lot of things on microfiche. This was in Singapore. I was looking up some articles about elephants when I happened to catch sight of just a short line in some other article about the decline of spirit marriages amongst the Chinese. And I remember thinking at the time that this is so interesting, and I know what this is. This is the marriage of the dead. And I'd heard about it when I was a child, um, when I was living in Malaysia, because Everybody has a lot of peculiar stories that they like to share with you. And my grandmother had also, um, my grandmother had also burned a lot of paper offerings to the dead. And I remember helping her fold them when I was a little girl. So I thought, this is a marriage of the dead. Um, and I went away and I thought, this is so interesting. Maybe I can squeeze this into my elephant novel. Um, 
which was clearly not a good idea. And, but I went away, and from then I sat down and I actually wrote the first chapter of this book at one go, pretty much as you see it. And then I put it away. Um, I think a lot of people who write have bits and pieces hidden all over the house, like squirrels. And this was just one of them. But it was the first chapter, a voice that stayed with me. And later on, when I discovered that my elephant novel was really, really untenable, I remembered this and I picked it up. But it goes further back in some ways because um, I'd actually been wanting to write about ghosts for a long time, even in university. Uh, I'd actually, well, this is for my senior dissertation, my thesis. I, I was very interested in the idea of female ghosts in Asian culture because, I mean, I was raised on a diet of hair-raising ghost stories by uh, my Chinese grandmother, you know, ghost stories being the weapon of choice for elderly Chinese ladies. So I had always thought it's very interesting that the, um, first of all, a lot of Asian ghost stories are simply very frightening. And secondly, why is it that the most terrifying ghosts are always women? And it seemed to me that this is an, sort of an implicit recognition that women who were traditionally oppressed um, probably were very frustrated. The only way their frustrations would come out would be after death. And a lot of the reasons for these really fearsome female ghosts were um, things like dying in childbirth or being betrayed. So I thought, I, thought that was, I thought that was really interesting, but I didn't end up writing that dissertation because I chickened out. <laughs> I thought nobody would ever hire me if they saw my resume. Um, but I, you know, the idea of ghosts and women sort of stayed with me for a long time. And so when I, you know, later on fortuitously ran across that article, um, they sort of clicked together. That's really interesting. Um, tell us what a spirit marriage is, because um, I know because I read your book, but people who are listening may not know. Well, a ghost marriage is traditionally a marriage between the dead. So um, it is a very peculiar Chinese idea that the dead can be married off um, to one another and sometimes very occasionally to the living as well. And, and ghost marriage occurs for a tremendous variety of reasons. Um, very much like there are many reasons why people get married in the, in the normal way. So let's say, for example, if um, Romeo and Juliet were Chinese and they died, you know, the Chinese solution would be to marry them, in which case, you know, um, the Capulets and Montagues would uh, patch up their feud and everyone would save face. They would now be family. So that would be one way to do it. Um, you'd also get a ghost marriage happening for other reasons, such as um, for family reasons, if you had a concubine who produced a son, you might marry her posthumously to raise her rank to that of a wife, to make the son more legitimate, for example. Um, and there were many other things. Sometimes they occur because of hauntings. So the classic way that Chinese, the classic sort of Chinese ghost story is when a ghost appears in your dreams. And very much as it does in my book. And when I was a child, I read a lot of Chinese stories. There's actually this famous anthology by Pu Songling, which is, um, I think the English name is Tales from a Chinese, Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio. Or, and I read these when I was a child. And they are all set in this strange fantasy world with a blurred borderline between spirits and humans. You know, the sort of world, if you've ever watched Hong Kong movies, it's where, you know, uh, foxes turn into women and swordsmen can fly. They can go from one mountaintop to another, this sort of world. And I read a lot of these books when I was a child, and I also read a lot of Chinese comic books. <laughs> so um, you probably see that influence in my work as well. Um, so it, things like that happened in those ghost stories, although they often happen to young scholars and, um, you know, the idea of dreams. So when I, you know, curiously enough, when after I had written this book, going back to the topic, ghost marriages, I actually had, um, I was talking to a Singaporean friend and he said to me, oh, you know, um, my uncle had a ghost marriage too. And that was about, I think, 15 or 20 years ago. And his story was in some ways uh, almost like a Chinese archetype um, he said that his grandmother had had a dream one night in which her deceased son 
appeared to her and said, um, you know, I've met this nice girl in the afterlife and I'd like to get married. Could you arrange my marriage? So he says his grandmother then got up the next morning and he, she was told in the dream the name of the street on which the girl's family lived and the family name. So apparently she then went over, she went to the street and she looked for such a family and she found them. And when she found them, um, the mother of the family said that she'd had a similar dream in which her deceased daughter had said, I would like to get married in the afterlife and could you arrange my marriage? So according to my friend, um, they then had a marriage, a real wedding ceremony um, ex- for the two um, departed. And since then, um, he says that family is considered family. So they get invited to all the um, family events. I mean, they're considered in-laws. And I thought that, that was really interesting. So a ghost marriage can take this form as well. Yeah, that is fascinating. It, it, in some ways, it sounds so familiar to me because it has this sense um, that you also found among the Tatars and among the people of Central Eurasia, I think, in general, where there really is, and among my own Celtic people, actually, as well, there really isn't, you know, it's like there's almost a curtain between the living and the dead, but there's no real separation. You you get the sense that people are just surrounded all the time by by their ancestors and their you know, relatives who can still speak to them across this minimal divide whenever the the barriers are kind of lowered. And um, there's a belief in Tatar culture also that if someone dies prematurely, they're going to be angry because they didn't have a chance to get married and have children and do all the adult things. And so you have to appease them. They, I don't think they have spirit marriages, at least I'm not aware of it, but, you know, you have to make special... Um, um, what's the right word for it? And offerings to them to you know to make sure that you acknowledge their their anger and and appease them. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it is very interesting this idea that life continues, is very much in a somewhat similar form afterwards. And by the way, I'd like to say that I loved your book, The Golden Links. Really <laughs> Thank <enjoyed> you. <laughs> no, and it's there's not many books about Central Asia, but um, yours was really wonderful. Um, so I think that this, you know, the whole, you know, what you were saying about amongst the Tatars, the idea that you continue to provide for your relatives, and this is also very Chinese, the idea that your relationships continue after death. And when I was talking to my friend, for example, about his uncle's ghost marriage, in some ways it seemed like a joyful occasion mm-hmm. for his grandmother to know that her son in the afterlife had met some nice girl, you know, that he was getting married. <laughs> yeah. But then it comes with all the attendant things, sort of like, well, now we need a house, which you burn, and the idea of burn paper offerings, um, which show up in my book, um, as which, which are believed to become tangible in the afterlife. So you still need to do things like you need to burn money for the afterlife, and they do, they sell stacks of special notes, that are, they actually say hell bank note on them, and that you're supposed to burn for your relatives. And, um, you know, provide for them. Nowadays, there are a lot of modern-day offerings, such as um, cars, you know, minivans. Minivans seem to be very big. <laughs> Back in Singapore, about um, last year, you know, there's many kinds of paper offerings. There are very large community offerings, for example, for hungry goats. And then there are the individual private offerings for family members. So you can go out and you can buy a paper effigy of... Um, they basically look like... Um, you know, paper models of things, sort of, and so you can buy paper clothes, paper shoes, paper um, paper cars, paper roast chickens in three flavors. And in the olden days, and they also sell games, um, get cards, you know, paper mahjong sets for those who like to play mahjong in this life. Uh, and modern day offerings such as paper iPhones, paper Game Boys, and um, paper Louis Vuitton suitcases. My goodness. Keeping, <laughs> keeping up with the Joneses forevermore. <laughs> yes. And I, I have another friend who is Taiwanese. Her family is Taiwanese. And she said that, you know, they also look at... And so this is very much in the Chinese community, wherever it is around the world. So I've talked to Chinese from, you know, Taiwan, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, and even the, even the Chinese in South America. They still remember these. Um, and this you also consider a, somewhat of a folk tradition. 
But this Taiwanese friend of mine told me that when her grandmother passed, because she was a super fashionable lady, they burned a paper helicopter and a helicopter pad for her, a paper Ferrari, and strangely enough, she said they actually burned some of her real clothes as well. That's really interesting. I so much want to get back to the power of female ghosts. But first, um, I'd like you to tell us a bit about Lilan and how she gets herself in this situation. Because it's, as you mentioned, it's it's not a common thing, even in 1893, when the offer is made to her to become a ghost bride. Yes, it, it would not have been common. And, you know, for Chinese who are in general quite superstitious, it would be a bad marriage offer, you know, to marry the dead. Uh, so, you know, we, we spoke about the variations of ghost marriages. The very rarest is to marry the living to the dead. And it usually would occur if you had a, you know, a personal tie. You know, let's say you had already promised to marry someone and then they passed away and you might be so heartbroken that you felt like you wanted to go through with it. Um, and very occasionally, and this goes back to ancestor worship, uh, let's say the son of a rich family had died and they felt like he needed a wife, he had no children they might find a poor girl to marry into the family as a widow. So she would enter as his widow, and she would spend her life taking care of his offerings, his altar, you know, live in her in-law's house as a widow daughter-in-law, and probably an unpaid servant in that sense. And sometimes they would even adopt children, because, you know, the whole idea of family and children is really important to the Chinese. They might adopt a child and bring him to the altar and say, look, this is your son. This year he's done really well. He scored first place in the math competition, etc. So that's a very old-fashioned way of doing it. And that was the case um, for Li Lan, the character in my book. I was interested in this because I thought, um, I think it would not have been a very good deal for women at the time. And when I, the idea of a spirit marriage occurred to me, um, for some reason, I jumped right away to the thought of the living marrying the dead. And I thought, in what circumstances would you be induced to take this up? Because I think most people would prefer to really get married and have their own children. Being a widow is not very is not a very desirable sort of um, state to be in, in most Asian cultures. I think that includes India as well. So I think she'd have to be pretty hard-pressed economically to take this offer if she had no personal relationship with the deceased beforehand. So, and that is, in fact, her case. Her father, well, her mother has died uh, when she uh, died when she was four, and her father, um, the, the, her mother died during a smallpox epidemic, and her father also suffered from smallpox, and Lilan herself had smallpox but has no visible scars. But her father's face was disfigured as a result of the illness, and it's implied in the book that that in part, causes him to be isolated, although he's also grieving for her mother. Um, and as a result, his business declines. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, half the book is reads a bit like a... You know, when I think about the book, um, I, I think about it as... I was very interested in exploring parallel worlds. And I think you'll see this echoed in the book, like, for example, um, Day versus Night... You know, the living world, the world of the dead, um, the real Lim Mansion where she goes to visit, and the other ghostly Lim Mansion, which is made out of burnt paper offerings. Um, And even, I think, the structure of the book sort of echoes this as well. The first part of the book is when she's in the real world. The second part is when she um, gets, she's, get separated from her body and she starts to wander through the spirit world of the afterlife. And that is this sort of blurred fantasy realm where spirits of all kinds and dead people speak to her, very much like magical realism. And when I was writing this book, I actually did think, so who's going to want to read this book about an obscure practice in some small Southeast Asian country? So, um, and to me, the first part of the book is almost sort of, it's sort of like a 19th century traveler's novel stuck onto... um, what turns out to be a much more fantastic kind of dream world. I think that's a fair fair statement. I mean, but it's really interesting and, and important to see who Lilan is before she uh, enters the afterlife, because we, we, we get a sense of her living, and, and she's actually a quite a strong-minded character for a girl who has grown up in this very, very restricted world, 
um, which is, again, quite common in Eurasia, not on the steppe, of course, but if you're not actively on the steppe. I mean, in, even in Russia, they used to confine women, elite women, to the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, she's she, she's well-educated by her father, and she... Her role in the household was never quite clear to me, but, you know, she's the daughter, right? And so she's being groomed, presumably, for marriage. But she doesn't have much prospect of marriage because her father's finances are so poor. Um, But then there's this contrast, again, between her house and the Lim household. And we should mention uh, that the Lim household is the one that has the spirit groom. Right. The fabulously wealthy Lim household. Right. You know, what's really interesting is... um, when I was writing this book, I thought the backbone of every Asian drama or soap opera is always like family relations. You know, and that was true, I think, um, historically. And it's even true today. When you, if, you, if you watch a lot of Asian soap operas, like Korean soap operas and stuff, there's a lot of drama involving family because family is so um, all-pervasive. You know, even the way in which, um, you know, I had this theory about Western ghost stories versus Asian ghost stories. And I feel like the Western ghost story is, in many ways, very much like a detective novel. It is a whodunit. Like, who did it? Who died? How did it happen? And the ghost is laid, or there's a solution when you discover what happened. Um, Whereas, I think a lot of Chinese ghost stories or Asian ghost stories in general are very complicated. They're more like webs. And it's really about managing your relationships with the dead. So... You also, you know, as we mentioned earlier, you have to continue to provide for them after they die. You need to burn enough money. You need to arrange their affairs and even to the extent of marrying them off. And so the Lim family, you know, when I was writing this book, is in some ways an archetype of all those wealthy Asian families who, you know, want to marry their sons off. And even though the son is dead, they still need to make sure that he gets what he wants, in which case um, it's a wife. And they arrange his marriage, and they they do all these other things. And I, I imagine in those days, you know, and not just for Chinese, but um, marriage was really an economic um, responsibility for a woman. If you look at, for example, Jane Austen, they're always, you know, they're always very preoccupied with getting married, because marriage for a woman would guarantee her status in society. It would basically, you know inform the rest of her life, whether or not she could afford two fireplaces or three. You know, as I think um, that's, that's something that comes up in Jane Austen as well, like how, what is his income and what does that actually mean? Does it mean you can have a carriage or does it mean you can have something else? So I thought that was very interesting and it's somewhat universal for women at that time around the world. Yes, I think so. And it's exactly what puts Lilan in her dilemma because... Uh, as it is, she's living in steadily increasing poverty, and if she accepts this ghost marriage, then she will be guaranteed uh, financial support, at least for the rest of her life, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And for her family as well. It's not only she, but her ama and her father and her servants and so on. They're all, in a sense, depending on her doing the right thing here. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, the right thing being defined in economic terms. So tell us about the Lim family, because they're actually a rather large and complex family with many members, and the groom is a rather spoiled young man, even after death, but he's certainly not the only player in the family. Right. Well, I thought the Lim family, as I... um, And, you know, at various times, you know, I was thinking, I need to give them some Chinese name. It was the Wong family, the Ong family. I thought, oh, well, let's just do Lim, because it's less commonly used than Wong. (laughs) I think most people could pronounce that name. Um, I thought of it as a great household, and a household made out of, you know, wives, concubines, you know, children by different wives and all the attendant family intrigues. Um, There is, oh, there's a movie with Gong Li in it, which is also about that sort of household. And, you know, the name of it is escaping my mind. Ah, Raise the Red Lantern. Yes, you know, right. Mm-hmm. That, that sort of household. But I actually thought of writing about the Lim family mostly because of the house, you know, the physical house being the embodiment of the family. And when I was a child, um, now Malaysia is full of ruined old houses, 
some of which have been torn down to make um, other things, and others which would in other and others sometimes preserved as hotels. But when I was a child, my um, my aunt took us to a house which was actually in Penang and not in Malacca, and. It, it was a, an old Chinese mansion, much as I described the Lin Mansion, which was, I think, called the House of a Hundred Rooms because it was supposed to have a hundred rooms. And it was built by a very rich man uh, for his family in the Chinese style. So a maze of courtyards. Courtyards, courtyards, and rooms, individual family rooms, balconies looking down one into each other. And when I went to that house as a child... Um, it was a complete ruin. The, it was, the, you know, the roof was broken in. There were pigeons everywhere. There was no glass in the windows. And yet, at the same time, there were people living in that house. And they were living there um, just in little rooms, like cooking things over small stoves, living here and there in the house. And it was such a strange and in some ways striking picture. I've never forgotten that experience. And I think when I started writing that this book that was the image that sprang to my mind and in some ways that's the superimposed image of a ruined mansion on top of a living one and you'll see that in the two parts of the book in which she first goes to the real life Lim mansion and then when she goes to the world of the dead there is another ghostly Lim mansion so it's like reflections of the same thing you can see it through time I don't really know what happened to that house and whether it ever got um, uh, we know whether anyone ended up saving it. It was really, really interesting. It is interesting. And yes, I can see the image that you're talking about from the book. It, it really, you really did capture that sense of it as being, you know, as there being the house in its glory, so to speak. And then in the afterlife, it's, it's almost like a decayed replica of itself. Um, there is, um, so there are, the, the Lim family has just had, a, actually, there are a series of secrets, which I think we will not go into because that's the whole fun of the book is <laughs> uncovering all of these things. Secrets. But, <laughs> but the, the, and correct me if I mangle these names. Okay, so there's Lim Tianqing, who is the, the groom. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has actually identified Li Lan during his lifetime, and now he is haunting his mother to get her to arrange this marriage. Uh, but he also has a cousin, uh, Lim Tian Bai, or is it Bei? Yeah. Tian Bai. Yeah. Um, and so this creates a certain um, complexity because the um, this part is revealed earlier in the book, but the father of Lim Tianqing is the actually the second brother. And so, but his older brother has died. And so Lim Tianbai has actually always been the heir to the family fortune. But during uh, Lim Tianqing's childhood, the the son of the, the younger but living brother has been treated as the heir. And so now, in a sense, there's a kind of justice in that the uh, the original dynastic pattern has been restored. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I mean, so I <laughs> to make this, I was thinking like, yes, a great house, fortunes, you know, some different heirs. Um, you know, like I said, this is really um, the backbone backbone of a lot of juicy Asian soap operas. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> that's all in the book. Okay, and in addition to that, there are several wives. Mm-hmm. Uh, only one of them is is really. I, she's probably not the only one still living because I seem to remember a third wife who was also kind of mm-hmm. reading. And this is again, very raised the red lantern. The second wife has committed suicide, uh, but the, her daughter is still a player in the, the story. Mm-hmm. So there's this is very large and complex mm-hmm. family. And then when uh, Lilan goes to be inspected, I suppose, by the mother or wooed perhaps into the marriage, because I think it's fair to say that she is not enthusiastic about this offer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially after Lim Tianqing starts haunting her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she meets Lim Tianbai, and she's very attracted to him. And so that's an additional, uh, how should we put this, factor deterring her from the marriage. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, um, 
When I wrote that scene when she meets Tian Bai, I did actually feel like, in some ways, it was a very difficult scene for me to write. It seemed like a very stilted scene because, you know, a girl like Vivan who had very little outside contact, of course you're going to fall for the first reasonably good-looking young man that you see. You know, it is a cliché, and at the same time, it would have been reality. And I also thought, what would they have said to each other? They probably have no idea what to say to each other. And I, re- and I was thinking about, I wonder how many awkward meetings there were um, in those days when people were pretty much arranged, their marriages were arranged. So um, I did think that, gosh, if there is a marriageable young man in the household as an alternative, uh, it would be very hard for her to resist. And then it turns out that, in fact, they had been engaged. Right. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and, so, um, and, you know, it was, I have to say, in some ways, um, it was a fun story for me to write because I, um, so I have a lot of wonderful author friends who write by, uh, by laying out their books. You know, they'll have, say, chapter one, this happened, chapter two, and, um, you know, I'm curious to know, Carolyn, do you write like that? No. <laughs> Not in the least. And, you know, in my head, I'm always going to. I, I do. I've gotten to the point uh, because I'm now in book three, and so I really didn't want them to take as long as the first did, the first two did. So I did sit down and write an outline so that I would know where it was going. But as soon as I start to write, the whole thing goes out the window. I start thinking, oh, well, maybe they did this. It's, you know, a character says something that I wasn't anticipating. And um, and then when I finally get to the end, I have to go back and redo the beginning so that the whole thing makes sense. <laughs> well, I, you know, I sympathize with you because I write the same way. You know, I'm unfortunately a sort of seat-of-the-pants writer, so, and my husband has said to me, well, you know, maybe if you, maybe you wrote an outline, things would just like, well, it doesn't really work that way for me. And so as I was writing the book, a lot of it was discovery for me. Cause I'd be, and, uh, you know, the time I was writing this book, I really, as I mentioned, I never thought it would be published. And I was writing it as sort of like a newspaper serial to entertain my family and my friends, because I've been writing these short stories. Um... And, you know, when things are going well and you're writing about the seat of your pants, and it's, it's lovely, you know, it's lots of fun, and you think, oh, ah, this is what happened, and that's why he said this. But when things are going badly and you're stuck, <laughs> it's really, really horrible because you don't even have an outline. And so that happened, actually happened to me in the middle of this book. I, it took me three years to write this book, and one of those three years was a fallow year in the middle when I simply got stumped. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my goodness, there's too many plot points up in the air, and I'm just going to have to, you know, put it in a drawer and forget about it for a while. <laughs> I sympathize. I'm very envious of people who can plot, but I can't. So, I mean, I do to a very, very general degree, but I can't stick to it. It's just, it's no fun, for, apart from anything else. It feels too mechanical. <laughs> Um, let me say, by the way, that it, the scene did not come across stilted at all to me. I thought it was very charming because, precisely because, you know, this is probably the first real conversation she's had with a young man. So, of course, she's flustered and she doesn't know what to say. And, and he's an attractive young man, too, which just makes it worse. I mean, even the the most <laughs> <laughs> sophisticated of us when we're 18, we do, um, you know, we say stupid, what we think at the time are stupid things when we heard <laughs> facing someone who attracts us so anyway so so let's keep let's keep going on where as i said we're only going to go so far into the book and then we'll stop because um because we want people to read it but there is this this major shift that happens is that, that because lilan is uh, being haunted by uh lim Tianqing, she her uh she finally confesses to her aman there's a kind of uh, disconnect within her own household. Her father is very much not a believer in ghosts, but her Emma is, is very much a believer in ghosts. And it, she's really um, Leland's mother in every practical sense because she's lost her real biological mother mm-hmm. when she's very young. So she finally confesses to her Emma that uh, she um, um, she's being haunted and so she's taken to a medium. And uh, from there... Uh, 
the medium gives her what turns out to be opium, as I understood it, and to to block the dreams. That's, that's the main purpose of it, is to block the dreams. And one day, Lilan takes too much, and so then her body is separated, and as you say, she moves into the afterlife. Um, the one other thing I want to say before I turn it back to you is that even though at the beginning you may think you know that this which way this love story is going, it doesn't actually go there, or at least it doesn't go there in the way that you might expect. Um, I I hope that's vague enough to keep people motivated, but it's not a straight uh, sort of, you know, there's two guys and um, it's obvious which one she's going to end up with at all. Yeah, well, I yes, I, I did not... Um yeah, I did not really know where it was going. And I had to say the second part of the book um, was really actually the most fun part of the book for me to write. Uh, because it's when she goes into the world of the dead and so many things become possible. Um, so if the first part of the book is, you know, that in, in some ways I think oh, the language almost reflects this. The first part of the book is much more, um, much more 19th century. It's more restricted because... As you said, it echoes her real life. She, she can't really go that, to that many places. The second part of the book, um, when she becomes a wandering spirit, almost a ghost herself, is when a lot of things happen and um, she, can choose, she can choose her own way, but she has to pay a terrible price for it. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, it's, it was really, really interesting to me, too. It was the, the part of the book that I, I loved. I, I liked the setup, and, and I recognized it as setup and as essential, but it's when we actually get to the afterlife that the real imagination kicks in, and, and I'm fascinated by stuff like that. I, I really enjoy reading about other people's views of how the afterlife would work. Um, so tell us a little bit. You don't have to tell us the plot, but tell us about your imagining of the afterlife? Well, you know, the Chinese concept of the afterlife is really a sort of um, mishmash of various beliefs. And, you know, there is a tremendous variation depending on where people come from and what they think. But in general, it sort of combines sometimes contradictory beliefs. So you have this, this Buddhism, you know, the Buddhist notion of reincarnation. And then there's also Taoism, which is all those, you know, magic people who can fly, wanting to live forever, you know, the elixir of immortality. Um, recently, the um, Terracotta Warriors exhibition came to San Francisco. It was a fantastic exhibition. And I was thinking when I went to look at it that Qin Shi Huang, who was the first emperor, he really had what you would consider class A grave goods. You know, they weren't made of paper, they were made of bronze, and they, you know, they're life-size, this is the whole idea. So Tia Huang was very much into the, I want to live forever, I'm looking for the elixir of immortality, and you can see that reflected in the afterlife that he had constructed for himself. So, and then there would also be, on the other hand, um, just a lot of folk superstition, which is what you would consider ghost marriages and all the other things, fairy tales. Um, boxes, you know, spirits who come out of the, who are bees and flowers and things like that. And that's in some ways kind of animist um, or, and it seems um, similar to Shintoism in some ways. So these are all sort of put together in a mishmash and um, some people believe in bits of it or they believe in all of it and Someone actually asked me, like, do Chinese people believe in all of it? And I said, no, it depends. It really depends on the person. Um, in the book, Lilan's father, for example, is a devout Confucianist. And Confucius had actually said, um, let's not talk about ghosts and spirits. You know, let's focus on life as we know it and how to live a good life. So I had him be, you know, be like that. And, and in the book, Amar is he complete opposite. She's the one who's running around saying things like, ooh, if there are ghosts in here, we need to get you exorcised. You know, we should maybe pour some dog's blood around the room, which was supposed to reveal the presence of ghosts. And very unfortunate for the dogs. (laughs) I would imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, who would ever think of things like this? So, um, you know, amongst the Chinese, there's tremendous variation, but I thought it is a very rich mythology. Oh, there's also the idea of the ten courts of hell. And I... That seems to me more like a folk thing, um, the ten courts of hell. And so, and there's also the idea that there must be some place 
to receive all these burned paper offerings um, of houses and horses and servants. So I actually I put some parameters around it and I actually made up the planes of the dead because it seemed to me there has to be some sort of explanation how these all these things go together. And in my book, it is almost like a kind of purgatory or it's an extension of the world as we know it before people go on to judgment and reincarnation. So I, I sort of put them together in what seemed to me a logical sort of fashion, but um, that was all my imagination. So any errors in there are of my making. <laughs> so um, I, I think that, though, we know when I've talked to other people about it, the idea of the ten courts of hell and, and how, you know, it seems very similar to also, you know, Dante's circles of hell as well. There are a lot of parallels in Western literature. Yes. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that connection, but you're right. There are. Uh, and in your world of the Plains of the Dead, the this is where the, I mean, not all the ghosts are female, obviously, but, you, but just to link this back to where we were in the beginning, there are... Mm-hmm. One of the things that we see there is that, first of all, the the quality of, of people's um, living arrangements, to borrow a phrase, because none of these people are actually literally living. They're all dead, but their circumstances depend on how well their own descendants are providing for them. So this is a source of irritation in some cases that they're not getting enough food or they're not getting it, you know, they don't have enough money, their houses are run down and so on. So, which is wonderfully, you know, like again, we were at the idea of family conflict. Um, but also there is, um, you know, the people that Lilan encounters are in some ways um, mirror images of the people that she knows in her life. Yes. I thought that would be interesting. Um, you know, as I said, parallel worlds, right? And it is a, a strange sort of synchronicity existing between the two places. Um, and I didn't plan it, but I thought it would be sort of eerie because it, it, it is like the paper servants. You know, when I was writing this, I was thinking about the Uncanny Valley. Uh, do you know about the Uncanny Valley? I do. What's the Uncanny Valley? Okay. <laughs> this is for people who read science fiction. Science fiction. <laughs> um, the Uncanny Valley is this effect that I think scientists... Um, have studied in which, you know, when there's a moment when things are very similar to us but not is when they are the most creepy. I think, I'm paraphrasing my husband who explained it to me, but so let's say you have a picture of, say you have a doll and it's sort of cute, right? Mm-hmm. And then as we make the doll more and more lifelike, there is a point in which it is almost lifelike but it isn't, that it is completely creepy. So let's say a, a doll, you know, looks cute, very big head, large eyes, and then we start to change the appearance of this doll, elongate its limbs, you know, make it life-size, give it human hair, and then there is a point when it looks very close to being human, but you know it's not, and that is completely creepy. Yeah, you're right. Reality. It is, yes. And so when I thought about the puppet servants in the book, you know, which are these servants made of paper, and they're burned as offerings, I thought that that would be completely very eerie and kind of horrible in some ways, like a, um, like a travesty of life. So, uh, and I think a lot of the things, you know, the, the, to me when I was writing, sometimes I was writing this book late at night, <laughs> I was thinking, oh my goodness, what am I writing? I thought about the things that um, in some ways I found creepy. When I was a child, I always preferred stuffed animals. I did not really like dolls. And I did not like those, especially those, you know, those porcelain dolls with eyes that open and close. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as they approach being more lifelike, they just seem less nice, you know, less cute. So, and I've noticed this reaction with a lot of children. Like children often prefer animals or dolls that really look very different. Um, and so, you know, I put that in my book as well. Yeah, and and it is. It's not a horror story in any way, and yet it is. You can imagine that it would be a horrifying experience to live through. Mm, right, something that looks like it should be something, but is not. Right, you know, and that works both ways. I think in this sort of fantasy afterlife, there are some things which she thinks are going to be one way, and they're not, and they turn out to be delightful. And other things which you think should be recognizable, and they're not, and they're really horrific. 
So is there a passage you would like to read to us from uh, The Ghost Bride? I have already read the opening passages. Okay, let's see. Well, I sometimes read this passage at book readings, and it's a paragraph. It is when Lilan has um, left her body and gone to the other ghostly malacca, which is made out of burn paper offerings. And I'm going to read a paragraph of that. Please. The streets became increasingly familiar in a strange way. Parts of them looked nothing like what I remembered. Yet there was a spatial recognition, some trick of proportion that sang out to me. In some places where there ought to have been buildings, there was nothing but old trees and rocks. In others, there were three or four fine dwellings occupying the same spot. And of course, everything was much further apart, as though the original streets had been stretched to twice or even thrice their width and length. On one corner, which in the real Malacca held only the shell of a decaying house, there was a grand mansion. From behind the imposing gates came the faint sound of laughter and women's voices. I shuddered as I passed. Despite the gaiety, I couldn't help remembering what that house looked like in the living world, with its roof fallen in and the wild grass breaking up the cracked stone floors. There had been tales about that house ever since I was a child. Some said that a plague had killed all the inhabitants. Others that the last master of the house had gone mad and butchered his wives and concubines, laying their bodies out in the courtyard until the stones ran purple with old blood. As a child, I had avoided that house, my head full of frightening tales told by Amar. Now, seeing it as it might have been in its days of glory, I felt terrified, yet drawn to it. What would happen if I knocked upon those doors? With an effort, I pulled myself away. Curiosity was my besetting sin, I told myself. That's lovely, thank you. I think that captures it. I mean, it is really curiosity that drives her in so many ways, uh, which is not surprising for someone who's 18 and has led a very sheltered life. <laughs> you know, when I was writing this book, um, I really did think of Lilan as a girl who wants to travel. Mm-hmm. She wants to go somewhere. She wants to go to other places, but it is impossible for her in her current situation. And that's why, um, you know, a lot of the first part of the book, when I was writing it, I was thinking about... 19th century novels and these Victorian um, armchair travelers books, which were really written for people who would never go to like um, to you know to parts of Europe or to to Asia. For example, Swiss Family Robinson or Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea is what I was thinking of. Um, if there's one thing that people could take away from your novel, what would that be? What is the sort of overarching theme or something that you would like them to hear? Hmm. Um, you know, I'd be really happy if people enjoyed the book, <laughs> if, it, if it was entertaining and thought-provoking. Um, I think that it is an interesting subject that we don't often talk about. Like, what are your hopes and fears? What do you think the afterlife is like? Uh, at, so I, th- I think that is an interesting exploration. And if people you know, thought more about those questions, I'd be very happy. Sounds great. I have to tell you, I hope I don't meet any puppet servants. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was actually thinking, well, you know, you think about the afterlife, maybe the Chinese afterlife isn't really a very good one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, cherubs bearing manna or something is much more appealing. <laughs> Yeah, it, it does really make you make you think about it. Um, and, you know, part, part of the reason I did think about it was, um, as I mentioned earlier, when I was a little girl, I remember helping my grandmother fold these things. And they would, they would actually sell things like gold and silver paper that you can fold. And there's a way to fold it into an ingot. So it looks like gold and silver ingot. It's like origami for the dead. And I remember watching her do this and helping her out a bit and thinking, what did she actually think, you know? Why, you know, when we were burning all these notes, like, you know, where was this going? What did she think about it? Um, and that was, you know, an interesting exploration for me. It was very interesting for me, too, because I had, I don't have your family background, so I had never, I, I did, I was aware that, that uh, Chinese families, um, you know, took care of their ancestors after death. I had no idea that it was as, 
um, detailed or as complicated in some ways, you know, that so many, I, I had never heard about the burning of things for the afterlife and all of that kind of thing. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Mm. You know what? It is interesting, too, that they also do it as communities. So the idea of hungry ghosts, which I also cover in the book, um, the hungry ghosts are the people who actually die with no relatives, no descendants to take care of them. And in some ways, that is the Chinese, the traditional Chinese nightmare, not having kids, not having descendants. Um, so, and they are people who uh, are just wandering around and have nothing to eat. It's kind of a terrible afterlife because they're starving. They have no clothes. They have nowhere to live. Um, and so once a year, a lot of people will burn extra stuff for these um, poor unfortunates. And the communities will also get together and they'll pool money and they'll burn things like a, a ghost hotel. Oh, yeah. wow. A That's country great. club for yeah. ghosts. <laughs> yes, it is really interesting because when I actually was back last year and I, I went to see them, they were burning it. The community center was burning a paper replica community center. This is what I mean by these strange synchronicities. <laughs> this weird parallel. The community center together would say, okay, now we're going to build a paper effigy. And they did. It's all built in this very old-fashioned way. And these are very large, the community offerings. They're, it's a complete cottage industry which makes all these, uh, professionally makes these paper figurines and things like that. And so, for example, the hotel that they were burning was about I think about seven or eight feet wide and about six feet tall. Good Lord. That's it was enormous. Mm. It was like a dollhouse made of paper, but the structure inside it is reeds because the whole thing has to be burned. Um, and then the outside is covered. It looks like a traditional Chinese house, a very large one. It's very brightly and vividly colored, uh, like Chinese folk crafts, you know, like paper crafts. And they made little tiny paper servants who were looking out of the windows and there were even pavilions with small tables, you know, anything, whatever it is, the ingenuity of the craftsman who makes it. And my father actually told me in the olden days when they would make even more elaborate things. Um, I also saw besides this, you know, life-size horses, paper horses, and all kinds of other things, which I actually don't really, I wasn't even sure what all of them were for. And the beliefs vary very much by community. So some things that are traditions in one community won't be burned in the other one. And I thought it was it was really, really um, interesting. And these things are quite expensive. They cost a lot of money. I think maybe about 20,000 ringgit, 20 to 30,000 ringgit, which is um, almost 10,000 US dollars. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, so it's a major undertaking. Uh, and they also burn, for example, a community bathhouse, a washroom for males and females. Um, and, you You've know, got to be clean bus. in the afterlife. Yes, a bus as well. <laughs> Um, would, it, all kinds of things. So whatever mm -hmm. they can think of that they think that people would need. And in some ways, I think it is considered like you give charity in this world of the living, and they will also give charity to the dead. But it is it gets very complicated, as you can imagine. I think it's a lovely custom in many ways. I mean, it really, it, there's a kind of respect there, which I think is quite charming. Um, I, I would love to t keep on talking about this, but we are running out of time. So let me ask you <laughs> instead, what are you writing now? Um, I am working on another novel, and it is a mystery, but it's still very nascent, and I'm, you know, writing in the seat of my pants note, mode, mode, so uh, it's, I, I don't know whether, how far it will go, and at the same time, I'm um, looking forward to working with the Singaporean comic book artist, Sunny Liu, and we're hoping to adapt The Ghost Bride as a graphic novel. Oh, it would make a wonderful graphic novel. <laughs> it would make a okay. Make a wonderful film, actually. And oh, that's very kind of you. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be um, interviewed by you. Thank you. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Goodbye, Yangshi. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Yangshi Chu, author of The Ghost Bride. You can find out more about her at her website, which is http colon slash slash y-s-c-h-o-o dot com like us on facebook search for new books and historical fiction and follow us on twitter at new books Histfic. if you do you'll see each time we post a new interview you can also visit my blog at http colon slash slash blog dot cplesley dot com that's c-p-l-e-s-l-e-y 
where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. Goodbye until next month, when I will host another conversation about new books in historical fiction.